You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by the Michael Carlin novel Motel California. Buy it in ebook and paperback versions wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Andrew Peterson, author of the best selling Nathan McBride series of books. Now, people who know me well know that I'm a music guy. The one thing I would love to have for the Uncorking a Story podcast is a real soundtrack. And there's all sorts of copyright issues with having a soundtrack. You know, for example, if I were to play for you the song I'm about to mention, I'd actually owe somebody money. And uh, I really don't want to owe anybody money, um, specifically coming out of this podcast. Um, the song that would that I think would definitely be included on the soundtrack, uh, certainly one of many songs, but the one song that really sticks out is called No Easy Way Out, and it's performed by Robert Tepper. And if you're a movie guy like me um, and appreciate the wonder that is the Rocky franchise, you might recognize the title of that song from the movie Rocky IV, which, of course, is the one where you know Rocky has to fight the Russian, who's actually played by a Swede named Dolph Lundgren. And I guess you know because it was the 80s and the Cold War being what it was, we couldn't really cast a real Russian in, in an American film. And that, that was actually the, the kind of uh, rule back then. I mean, if you remember uh, the, the fantastic movie, uh, Red Heat, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who, who was no more Russian than Dolph Lundgren, uh, actually played, uh, I think he was a Russian KGB agent, opposite of uh, Jim Belushi um, in that movie, Red Heat. And of course, um, God, the 80s being what they were, you really don't want to confuse the movie Red Heat with the movie Dead Heat, that starred Joe Piscopo and Treat Williams, which uh, actually was a zombie uh, flick well before the zombie craze. And that, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> is what you call a digression. Um, anyway, so, so why No Easy Way Out? Well, if you're a longtime listener and you've heard um, multiple uncorked stories from best-selling authors on this podcast, you know that to reach that status, that status of, of bestseller, there are no shortcuts to success. And if you think that there are honest-to-goodness overnight success stories in the literary world, you really are mistaken. And Andrew Peterson is certainly not somebody who you could characterize as an overnight success. And, and you'll hear him say it in this interview that he wanted to burn his first novel, um, but uh, he was afraid to burn it because you know burning it would actually have been an insult to fire. And And ladies and gentlemen, those were his words and not mine. I can't say for a fact that that's a fair criticism, but what I think really doesn't matter because that's exactly how he feels. Um, and yeah, I mean, not an overnight success. I, I think you'll hear him say it in this conversation. He actually wrote over a million words, 
before one was actually published. So, uh, you know, he, he's got a very interesting background. You know, he's a guy who studied architecture. He worked for a little while in that field. He jumped over uh, to a different career as a real estate developer uh, before he took the plunge into becoming an author. And you'll hear him tell you that it wasn't easy to, to reference the, the wonderful Paul McCartney. It was a long and windy road that included rejection. It included disappointment and a boatload of challenges along the way. But Andrew Peterson stayed focused. He stayed focused on that goal. He didn't take the easy way out or a shortcut home. So thank you again, Robert Tepper, for that. So I need to thank Antoinette Kuritz from Strategist Public Relations for bringing Andrew and me together. Uh, Antoinette is certainly somebody that Andrew credits with some of his success as, as an author. And I want to give you a heads up. Um, this conversation actually opens up in a bit of an unorthodox manner as we started off by talking about comedy. So you'll hear a little bit of that banter before we start uh, to get into Andrew's background. Um, But I know this is a story that you're going to enjoy. And be sure to listen to the end where Andrew divulges the one thing he wished he had done when he was first starting out. So without any more hesitation, here is my interview with best-selling author Andrew Peterson. I don't know if this is true, but I've heard this before from people that uh, humor wouldn't be funny unless there was an element of the truth in it. Absolutely right. Absolutely it, right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I wonder if I, now I'm speaking to the, somebody who knows about it, but that is true. Well, you know, if, if you think about what a real good comedian does, you know, uh, I'm thinking stand up, you know, they, they see the world in mm-hmm. a slightly different way than the, the rest of the general population and, and enough so to make an observation that just hits home and it makes you laugh. And, and hopefully, you know, if it works well, you're laughing at yourself a little bit and not laughing at somebody else. But sure. uh, that's the yeah. way I like to think about it. Well, good for you. Yeah, you know, humor that uh, um, tears other people down is not, I don't think it's as funny, honestly. No. no. I, I just kind of loses something in the, you know. I, I, came, I came across a comedian the other day. Somebody had posted uh, him on Facebook, and there was not, he was an older guy. Not one curse word in his set whatsoever. And, yeah. and I laughed probably harder. And look, I love Eddie Murphy. Like, I grew up, you know, when Eddie Murphy was, mm-hmm. like, in the, in the purple leather outfit. Um, yeah. But not, yeah, one, right. not one naughty word, not one, you know, curse word, not one sexual reference. It was just, like, observations about life. And, it, it, look, it made me laugh. And uh, I think it's harder. I think it's harder to be a clean comedian than it is to be... Um, you know, a dirty one and rely on, you know, the, the seven dirty words, if you will. I think that's true about authors as well. I, I, I really, I, I try to, I try to adhere to that. Um, I use an occasional bad word, but I, I do very, very much limit it. I, I just find it's, uh, it's almost cheating. It's, you know, it's, it's easier to get crude and, you know, I, it may be true in comedy as well, but I, I think it's a lot more challenging, like you say, to to avoid that kind of thing because it's it's so open ended. I mean, you can do anything, you know, as long as you have no rules, anything goes. Right, right, and I guess when anything goes, maybe everything goes too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's interesting. But you, I mean, you... I, I think the same principle applies to writing, at least as far as I can tell. I I I do try to write with a with with that in mind is that to, you know those those 
those four-letter words, they really aren't all that necessary. I mean, every once in a while for emphasis, but, you know, I've, I've had people that just pepper their novels with them, and it gets tiresome, honestly. You know, I, and I'm guilty of it, too. I mean, I <laughs> I wrote a, a book, a comedy, um, you know, and, and that and the F word was in the title of it. And, um, you know, it was... <laughs> It's funny, when I was a kid, you know, I, I saw the movie Midnight Run with, with Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin, and, you know, it was, it was probably one of the first rated R movies I saw, and my brother and I, you know, we counted, like, there was, like, sometimes, like, 43, <laughs> 43 uses of the F word in that movie. Um, wow. And, but, you know, for, for that, it kind of worked, but I, I did write a novel, and, you know, it's one of these things where... Look, there's a group of people who really love that book, and then there's a group of people, uh, my father among them, who are completely, <laughs> completely turned off by it. Um, and I, I kind of learned a lesson. You know, I really I learned a lesson after hearing some of the feedback from it. Um, but you know what? This, yeah, I, I mean, I, I did the same thing. I mean, I, I got to tell you a really quick story. Um, I, I, I went through first to kill my first book, and I, I got rid of all the. The Lord's name in vain. You know, I took all those out of there. I, I probably got rid of ninety percent of the cuss words, and ever since then, ever for the last seven or eight years, I've, I've written without them. You know, every once in a while, I'll throw one in just for emphasis. And I got criticized by some lady in New York. She goes, "I'm a New York accountant, and I cuss more than these guys do. Give me a break." <laughs> so I got I got chewed out for not having enough profanity in my books. You know, I guess I guess we can't, can't please you everybody. Can't <laughs> you can't win. Yeah, you you can't win. <laughs> Absolutely can't. So I mean, I, I I was blown away by that. I just I thought, who would have ever imagined somebody would criticize you for not using enough foul language? Well, good grief, right? Uh, good good grief indeed. Uh, you, I mean, I I know you just mentioned first um, first to kill. That that was your first mm-hmm. published book, but that wasn't your first book, was it? No, no, I actually had five. Well, I don't count the fifth, the fifth one, uh, five books before that. So um, I, I, I started out in the wrong genre. I was writing horror because I love Stephen King and I love John Saul. And I, I was uh, writing in the wrong genre. I, I wrote three horror novels. And it wasn't until I switched over to thrillers that I really found my niche. So it, it was interesting. That, um, and the novels I wrote were really terrible. Oh, I'm telling you, Michael, these novels were so bad. My first ones that burning them would have been an insult to fire. <laughs> it, 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 you know, I just couldn't do that to fire. I mean, I just you know, fi- do it. fire being like a perfectly good, you know, source of heat, you know, yeah. and, and warmth. And, and I mean, cavemen would be like, what are you doing? You're, you're killing our greatest yeah, thing here. Well, it's interesting that, you know, they're learning curves. It's like I, it's, if you, your first round of golf, right? If somebody were to video your first round of golf, you, you probably would be painful to watch it. I mean, it's just it's the same thing. So it's, it's, it's an interesting business. You certainly learn it over, over years. I don't think anybody picks it up super quickly. No, it's, it, it's like a it's muscle. Not that I've seen. It's like, to me, it's like a muscle. You know, the more you do it, the better you get at it. Just like, you know, if, if you're into working out and lifting weights and all that, um, I'm excluding myself from that group of people, but you know, well, look, <laughs> yeah. in my teens and twenties, yeah, I was all about that, but not not so much anymore. Sure. The joints are too much, but um, but it's it, it is it is a muscle, like just like anything else. And and the more you do it, the better the better you get at it. Um, but I mean, my first one was oh my god, it was I can't even look at it. I I, I mean I can't like yeah. I I have a copy. <laughs> 
it's it'll never see the light of day. Nobody will ever read it. Um, but it is. Uh, it, well, I, I, I got to tell you, I actually did insult fire, and I, I burned my first few manuscripts because I, if I ever died, like in a car wreck or something, and I wouldn't want those ever to get out there, you know. So I, I actually did actually burn. <laughs> they don't exist anymore because they are just that bad. But right. I mean, I've heard that from a lot of authors is that they their early work, and some authors will go in and dust them off and make books out of them. And I, I, I think that's a mistake because if they were bad then, they're probably, you know, there's something wrong with them that they didn't make it. Uh, it could be a matter of the story or the prose or whatever, but there's, you know, I, I think it's better to leave those learning uh, experiences in the drawer. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. They, no one, no one has to. It could be, it could be, you know, your little secret with yourself and you know your typewriter mm-hmm. slash word processor or whatever it is you wrote them on. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's an interesting deal. I, it, the golf out analogy is really pretty good because. The difference between being a professional writer and a hobby writer is really the difference between being a professional golfer and a hobby golfer. If you want to go out and make money uh, playing golf, you have got to do it a lot and be really, really committed. It's it's very competitive. I mean, those guys you see on TV, they make it look easy, but it is not. I don't know if you golf or not, but it is very, very difficult to do what they do. Oh, And I think that's why there's so few of them, because it's just to get to that level, just takes the total commitment of time and effort and you know you got to take your lumps my, my, how do you feel when you lose how do you, do you get back on your feet or you you know drown yourself in whiskey yeah well yeah i'll t- tell you what my my you asked me if i golf my third book was a book called winning streak and it, it the, the lead mm-hmm. character was the first person to win all of golf's four majors in the same calendar year which really hadn't been done I mean, Tiger, Tiger won yeah. all four majors, but not in the same calendar year. Um, so it was uh, that was kind of the start of it. But then he kind of walks away from the game because his his father, who's his caddy, you know, dies suddenly at the end of the last yeah. championship. But but golf is one of those interesting sports where, look, if you play major league baseball or football and you're on if you're you're on the team, you've got a contract, you've got money coming in with professional mm-hmm. golf. If you're not placing um, you know, if you're not making that right. cut, you're not getting paid. Um, that, that's right. It's a, it's a different animal. Yeah. It's a different animal. No, that, that that's absolutely right. And I, I mean, if if the NFL was merit based in pay, there would probably be a lot of players that aren't making as much. <laughs> but it's it's you know, and if you think about it, the money. I don't know. I, I see you can watch golf pretty much any any given weekend, can't you? I mean, there seems to be some kind of a tournament on every weekend. I mean, even like it's it does slow down after October, um, but then right mm-hmm. after January, you know, they're in they're in Hawaii, and then they go through California mm-hmm. and then Florida, and yeah, I mean, you could you could watch something golf related pretty much all year round. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting sport. I I always said if you're ever going to go into business with somebody, go golfing with them because you will learn everything you need to know from that person in a round of golf. Well, <laughs> um, you think about that. I mean, uh, you know, how do they, uh, do they cheat? You know, do they move their balls? Yeah. Do they, you know, laugh at themselves? Are they mad? Are they screaming? You know, I mean, it's one of those things that it is just such a frustrating game to play if you take it seriously. And, and you, I, as, as an amateur golfer, I just can't take it seriously. I'd be miserable out there if I did. It's, you know, yeah. Like I say, they make it look really easy on TV. No, it's funny. My father spent his entire career, 43 years, at the American Express Company. And he, I, I called him the chief golf officer because he was always taking customers <laughs> to play golf. And that, oh, that's, that's cool. he made all of his deals you know, on the golf course. I don't want to say all of them, but many of them 
were made there. But you're right. Yeah. I mean, you, you can tell a lot about a person by the way they play the game. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, they've got to be able to laugh at themselves and, 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 you know, I, I play the ball where it lies. I don't move it. I mean, if I've got a really nasty lie, I'll hack at it. And, you know, if I miss it, oh, well, but I, it's an honesty thing. It's really kind of a, you know, how do you, how do you look at the game? If you look at golf the way you look at business, then you want to be with somebody who's honest, you know, in, in, a, in a business adventure. So <laughs> Not to belabor the golf point, but I'll share a quick story. So two weeks ago, I, I have triplets, um, and they're 16 right now. Wow. Um, but how old? They're 16. Oh, man. Are you, are, you must be going crazy then. I, you know what? It, it, I, I was, if you asked me when they were you know, two months old, I would have <laughs> given you a different answer. I'm having a lot of fun with them now, but two of them, oh, were, good. Were, on the, uh, two of them were on the golf team at school. So I took two of them with me um to play two weeks ago with my and i have a twin brother so go do that math Mm -hmm. um so he and i played with my two kids and we were we were on a par three waiting to tee off and and the group in front of us was like painfully slow i mean painfully slow (laughs) and now there were eight people now waiting in our tee box because these guys were just and they had like two holes open in front of them so like my brother and i were losing our minds and my Mm -hmm. brother who's a a captain in the army (laughs) It just like shouted something out at these guys and they didn't take too kindly to, <laughs> to being pushed. <laughs> so they told him what he could do with his putter. Um, wow. and, and my kids look at me and they're like, dad, don't make a scene. Dad, don't make a scene. So we let it go. But, um, you know, it's, it's one of those games that can bring out the best in people and it can bring out the worst in people too. It sure can. Yeah, it sure can. But, uh, well, let's, well uh, yeah. let's get into it. Let's do it. I mean, I'm curious um, as to, you know, uh, you know, I know you, you, you weren't what, what anybody might call, not that this really exists, I don't think, in, in the writing world, but an overnight success. When did you first start writing, and when did you think writing was going to be a career for you? Well, that's an interesting question because uh, I... I read a lot as a child. I, I read constantly. I, um, I read Ray Bradbury and Isaac, As- Isaac Asimov and all the science fiction guys. And I love to read fantasy. I didn't read thrillers or mysteries so much as a kid, but I really loved those science fiction stories. And so I, I continued reading even through college. I would find time for it. And I can't remember what the exact circumstances were, but it was about 15 years ago. I was reading a book. I don't even remember which author it was. And I just griping about it that is terrible no that would never happen blah, blah, blah. so my wife comes and says well if you think you can do a better job why don't you write a book and I said, you know what i'm going to take that challenge and I, I i i did and i found out that it's really not as easy as it looks it's 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 a it's an entire process and so that's really how i got into it i i, I was griping about a book and my wife challenged me to write my own so you know, but but you know, before you were a writer, what was your what was your profession? So you know, before you were really making a living, you know, writing books, what were you doing? Well, you know, I couldn't make a living surfing, so I was a big <laughs> surfer in high school in La Jolla, and I figured, well, you know, there aren't too many surfers that are making a living, so I figured I better do something with my life that's going to be a little more uh, challenging. So I studied architecture, 
I became a mathematics and architecture major. Um, so I, I went two years to a junior college and then switched over to the University of Oklahoma and graduated with a degree in architecture in Oklahoma. And then I came back to San Diego and started working as a draftsman. Now, because you can't really start as a designer, all the, all the firms, you know, the architects get to do the fun stuff. So when you're low on the totem pole, you end up kind of being more of a draftsman type job. And I thought, I did not go four years to college to draft. And yeah. I want to design things. So I, I hung in there for a couple of years doing that. And then I just decided it just wasn't going to be a good fit for me. So I became a real estate developer. I would uh, buy uh, land and put in all the improvements, the curbs, the gutters, and the sidewalks, and then sell those finished lots to other developers who would then build homes on them. And that's kind of what got me you know, financially uh, independent enough to where I could you know, dive into writing. So when my wife challenged me with that, <laughs> that I, I, I was able to take, because you know, writing, as you know, takes a tremendous amount of time. It's, it's, I, I don't know how anybody does it you know, after work, especially if they have a family. I, I don't know how anybody. It takes a long time. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's early mornings and late nights and, um, mm-hmm. you know, weekends. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's certainly not, I, I'm not at the point where, where I'm, I, I could, you know, afford to just stop everything else. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've got three kids to put through college starting in two years. So, uh, we're, you know, we're, uh, the day job is going to be around for quite some time. Um, but uh, yeah, you're right, and, and and then there are people who I know um, because I've I've interviewed them who you know will crank out a book every six weeks, and I I just don't know, um, and then that's in a specific genre, right? So the, and, and the the standards in in that particular you know romance um, are not necessarily the same they are in you know mysteries and thrillers and, and other forms of fiction, but um, to me, I just well, my, know, my brain doesn't work that way. I, I, well, I, you know, I get the six-week thing. If you could crank out a thousand words a day for six weeks, you do have a book. But, I mean, how polished is it? You know, how, how can you... I, I know what you're talking about, and I know authors like that, too. And I just wonder, how can they... How can they get a book publishing, you know, camera-ready in a six-week time frame from beginning to end? It just... I, I don't get it. No, it's... It, yeah, it, I don't know how they do it. I can't comprehend it, um, and I, you know I know people who are also ghost writers for some of those you know big names that you see in that in that genre. So um, yeah, I mean, they, but it, you know what? It works for them. It, it just I, I can't see myself being able to do that. It just wouldn't work. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty. I actually make about ten editorial passes through every book I write. So I will finish the manuscript, and I, I edit a little bit along the way, but once I'm finished with it, I go back to the beginning, and I edit it, and then I go back again and again and again, probably ten times, and that takes about six months. Yeah. So I can't, I can't really do it faster than that because I really, I, I really care about quality. If I didn't, I could, I could easily do the six-week thing, but it's, not, it's, it's never been about quantity for me. It's always been about quality. I really like to put out a... I'd rather have 10 really good books than, say, 100 mediocre ones. Right. Just, just, just me. What, no, and, and then what, I mean, in terms of, you know, that six months, how much of that six months is planning or is planning, you know, before that six months time frame? Well, I, that's an interesting question. I, I, I always know how my books are going to end. I, the ending is very, very important. For me, my process is I write toward an ending. 
So when I have my ending, I write every sentence, every paragraph, every word is geared toward that specific ending. Like in Option to Kill, the third book in the series, there's a very traumatic scene where Nathan is with his, you know, this young girl that he's met, and they and they have to trust each other to survive. And so everything, you know, leading up to that big climactic scene is based on, you know, this trust that they build over the course of the story. And because because if they don't, they're going they're both going to die. So it's you know it's really one of those interesting things that you that you can really set up the ending through the story, which makes sense. But I know authors, Mike, that don't do that, that they just start writing and where the story goes is where the story goes. Mm -hmm. I don't know how anybody does that. I mean, imagine taking a vacation. Well, I don't know where I'm going to go, but I'm just going to go. I mean, you've got to dress for Hawaii different than you would for, like, Nome, Alaska. Right. Right? It's, it's <laughs> so I, I, I've, just, I've, always, I've always blown away by an author that can start writing and not know where a story's going. I have a, a neighbor, um, a guy by the name of uh, Lou Aronica, who started his career in publishing and is now a successful author. He's a you know, New York Times bestseller and very fortunate that he lives you know, literally around the corner from me. So we get together for coffee uh, quite a bit. And his, his advice is very, you know, very similar to, to, to you know, what you just said. It's you know, start with an outline. It doesn't have to be finished. It doesn't have to be. You just just know where you're going. And he, he says, you know, mm -hmm. believe me, it's not going to handcuff you. You know, you're gonna you think it might handcuff you, but it doesn't. And I found that when I started to write with an outline, just kind of knowing how the story ends and like where the the big beats are, you know, throughout, it's a mm -hmm. much more efficient process. I'm much more focused. And even though in my outline I might have, you know, one you know, one scene that I think is going to go a certain way, I, I know that I can change it. And oftentimes I do um, because something else inspires mm -hmm. me or, you know, something else just feels right, you know, feels better. Um, but it was, it was probably the singular, singular best piece of advice I ever got um, from, from another author. Yeah. I know a lot of people are, are, are scared of outlines and, I think for the reason you just said that they feel it might handcuff them or not allow them to be creative in a certain way. But that's like you said, it's not true because you can, you can deviate on your, let's say you want to go from San Diego to Florida. How you get there is entirely optional, but you want to make sure you end up in Florida. You know, if that's, if that's where, that's where your goal is and you can, you can deviate along the way, but make sure you get to that location because that's going to be the final ending of your story. Um, so, I don't really outline per se like a scene by scene thing. I have a beginning, a middle, and an end that I'm thinking about, but I know what the ending is, and I I definitely have to write toward that specific ending. And so the middle is kind of will unwind it by itself. I know there's certain things that have to happen along the way, but but you're right. I I allow myself a lot of freedom to explore different things. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, you never know when inspiration is going to hit you, and Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes I'll outline something, you know, months before I start writing. I mean, for me, it's like just the, the thought of writing a new book. I, I get so anxious about writing that first sentence or that first paragraph. Like, I will put it off. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm in a different situation. I mean, I'm not relying. This is not my primary source of, of income. It's not how my kids are, are eating at night. Um, so all the, all the pressure that I have is, is kind of I, I, I put on myself. Um, 
you know, and I mean, I want to get to the point, obviously, where um, other people are putting pressure on me to to get stuff done. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm very early. I mean, I've been doing this now for five five years, maybe, just seriously kind of, um, and I, you'd probably even call me a hobbyist. Um, but, uh, well, it's, I, I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a whole different ball game when you're, when you're not under contract, you have as much time as you, as you want to write that first book. And then when you get a contract, it's usually for multiple books, at least in the, with Amazon dot, you know, it is, and they want, they want books, you know, they want a series. So then you find yourself with a, with a deadline and I kind of liken it to, you know, in a physical way, if you had to walk across the United States in, say, 100 days, <laughs> you'd have to make that 30-mile trek every day. You've got to walk 30 miles every day. If you don't, the next day you've got to walk 60. And so you don't end up in Chicago if you still only have 10 days left, you know, so you really have to keep, keep it going. You've really got to. And so it puts a lot of pressure. I, I kind of liken it to waking up with a 45 in your face every morning, like, you know, get up there and write. <laughs> and for a lot of people, they can handle it. But for me, I really, it, it's, it stresses me. Because I care. I want to I I meet the deadline. And it's, it's, it, it's, it becomes, I wouldn't say it's not fun, but it's definitely more pressure. Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely there's definitely uh, definitely pressure there. Um, but on the flip side, it's also nice. I think it, it, it's important to be accountable to some someone other than yourself. I think accountability yeah. is a big thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course. And you know, so but authors do kind of experience burnout. You know, often the midlist burnout. You've heard of it. It's just where they're kind of kind of just writing almost in limbo because they feel like they should, they're not making enough money, they don't feel like they're being promoted enough, and they just want to keep cranking out books and hoping that, you know, the next one is the big one that breaks them out. But they need to keep their eye on the end goal, which is to enjoy life. You know, don't don't be so hung up in it that you really, that you're missing opportunities to just have fun. And I guess not forget why you started doing it in the first place. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. You know, as a, I mean, for me, it's as a creative outlet or because, you know, and, and there is a little bit of ego there too, right? Because nobody, nobody asks you, nobody says, hey, you know what? You should write a book. Well, maybe some people do, right? But it's almost like, um, it's kind of an egotistical thing if you think about it to say, okay, I have such a great idea that I know millions of people are going to love. So I'm going to spend six months of my life or two years of my life or whatever, kind of crafting it and, and not investing that time doing other things um, because you feel so passionately about it. There is a little bit of ego there, um, but I think there has to be also or else, um, you know, why do it? Well, th- you know, that's interesting. You're right about that. But, but I think one of the mistakes that many authors make is what they're writing is very interesting to them. But is anybody going to care other than their family and friends? You know, you, to write a mainstream thriller, you've got to be um, in the mainstream thriller mode. You, you can't just, you can't, you can't be writing it simply because it's fun to write and, and it's really interesting to you. you got to say, well, is anybody who's reading this going to find this interesting? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, so it, it's it's so you, you have to you have to stay focused on the story. Like, don't I, I always say, don't go too far off the, the trunk of the tree when you're telling your story because you go out on those branches. It's usually something that people aren't going to care about. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> so it's. Yeah. Well, just one of my little rules that I keep. Yeah, I mean, it is very easy to get self-indulgent, you know, when when you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Because for me, it's like, uh, look, I, I have a love for everything '80s and um, '80s hair metal specifically. Like for some reason, I don't know. I grew up listening to it. I still have a fondness for it, and I'll always sprinkle sprinkle in some kind of reference. There's a lot of a fair amount of pop cultural references that um, even my, my my editors will get back to me like. Uh, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I don't know why it's important. And I'm like, okay, well, you're 28 or however old, you know, whoever it is, you're not going <laughs> right. to understand the Starsky and Hutch reference, okay? But no, somebody in no, my no. age group will. Um, but you have That's to be right. careful. The other thing is you've got to be careful with that because if you put too much stuff in there, and I've learned it the hard way. Now you put too much stuff in there that's that's a little self-indulgent that's pop culture based and all of a sudden people get tired with it. So mm-hmm. well, there's a couple hard fast rules that I that I adhere to. I, I do a lot of research on books and I I you know, research can end up being a, a real drag on the story. You know, if you can't you can't put it all in there. I mean you don't want to fill up page space with research because it's just boring to people. So I, I use the 10% rule. If I do 100% of research, I put about 10% of it into the book. The other 90% stays out because yeah. I only want the very best parts of it. Another rule I, I use is that I never or rarely uh, mention politics. Um, but, but people don't want that. They don't want that in a story. They want to just be entertained and they don't want to be, you know, uh, they don't want to be t- preached to about your politics. Now, now in my story, Nathan is a Christian, so I, I do mention Christianity in it, but it's not in any way, shape, or form preachy. It's just a mention that he's a Christian. Yeah. So um, I, you just have to be careful with that kind of thing because it, it really can turn off a lot of readers. And, and with politics, you're always going to be half wrong. The country's pretty well evenly split. Yeah. So I, I, my advice to anybody who's writing is keep it out of there. People don't want to read that. It's not, it's not what they're picking up a book for, unless it's a political thriller you know, with a certain, you know, perspective in it. Yeah. Then, then I guess you kind of have to do it, but I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I, you know, I, first of all, I don't enjoy talking about politics with anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly don't think anybody cares what I think personally. Um, and, uh, they don't, no, they don't. And, and it's the kiss of death in a book. It's, you're going to turn a lot of people off. So I, I feel like I don't need to, to put it in there. But every now and then, like where appropriate, you know, with, with that winning streak novel that, that I wrote, it, there was a lot of loss mm-hmm. and the whole theme is about forgiveness. Um, so there is, there are, you know, I- intentionally a lot of Christian overtones in it. Um, but that's also how, how I was raised and that's kind of part of who I am, you know. Um, so that, that kind fine. of shines I think through. you can do that, and, but you, you, have to just, you have to just keep in mind that you don't want to be in any way, shape, or form preachy about it and and, and so uh, you'll you will lose readers doing that. Absolutely, you will. So it's a it's a fine line. I think you can touch on it and get the message across in a very in a very uh, tactful way, without you know getting in anybody's face over it. So Nathan, uh, I mean, he's your lead character, Nathan Nathan McBride, mm-hmm. and you have uh, how many how many Nathan McBride novels are are there right now? 
Well, number seven just came out uh, July third. Oh my so goodness! So that that's kill. that's uh, that's that's just three days ago. Just <laughs> three days, I know. <laughs> so I've, I've I've been encouraged by the early reviews I've gotten. That um, I, I got one one star review. The guy wrote on Amazon. He goes, "I haven't received my book yet." I go, "You gave me one star for that." Yeah. Because Amazon hadn't delivered the book to your Kindle yet, so it's okay. <laughs> I mean, it happens. But I, the the early reviews are very good. People seem to be liking it. It's a very emotional story. Um, very personal. I, I think most good thrillers are have those two elements in them. The story has to be very personal to the main your protagonist, your main hero of the story. Where and, and, and you have to engage the reader on an emotional level. If you don't, you're going to lose them. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. That's that's probably you know influences your your ten percent rule. You know you, you don't want to throw too too many facts at them. You've got to make them feel something. Not just learn something. Oh no, it's it, it's pointless. I mean, it, they, it, I could I could just hear them saying, oh, "I could care less about this. Get me back to the story." <laughs> where where did Nathan come from? I mean, not like not like where did it, you know? I don't want character facts, but like how did how did you construct him, and, and what was your inspiration on on um on kind of developing that Nathan McBride character? Well, it's an, it's, an, it's an interesting question because I actually invented Nathan McBride before uh, Lee Child invented Jack Reacher, but Lee Child was actually published before me. So I always say that Lee Child copied me. <laughs> um, now, you know, of course he didn't know, and but there, the Nathan character really came from my uh, admiration and respect for our, our nation's military. I... I, I you know, it was so funny. I was in the grocery store the other day, and the lady asked, well, you want to buy some Gatorades for the troops that are up in Hunter, Hunter Liggett here? It was like a promotional thing, like a giveaway thing. I know I don't want to buy them one. I'm going to buy ten of them. Because I said, those guys could die for me, so the least I could do is buy them some Gatorades. Yeah. The guy behind me in the, in the grocery line was nodding his head like, yeah. So I, I have a tremendous respect for our military. So I thought I was into high-power shooting. I would, I would shoot competitively with an M1A, the, the uh, civilian model of the um, M14, and I would shoot with Marine Corps teams out in the desert, like at 29 Palms and Palmdale and places like that, and they were just really, really good good folks, very, very good people. And so I figured, well, what can I do? I, I know about rifles, I know about high-power shooting and precision shooting, and I like the Marines. Why don't I make uh, my character a Marine sniper and give them a really... Uh, colorful background like he was captured on a mission early in his career and very brutally interrogated for three weeks before he was rescued so he's got some emotional baggage but i think that makes him deeper and i think it makes him more interesting to the reader that they can really relate to uh you know the power of the human spirit to overcome you know to get beyond things that would normally destroy a lesser man and so, I mean, so he, you know, he first appears in that in that first novel. Um, yes. Is it is it um, which is just just a stupid observation on my part? Of course he does. <laughs> but is 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 oh. it how how tough is it to keep writing and finding new aspects about him? You know, as you go through seven seven novels, and I'm sure there's going to be more. But I mean, is 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 there ever a fatigue that sets in, or you know, do, how hard is it to find something new with him? Well, I, that's a great question, and the answer is kind of mixed. Um, writing a th- 
thriller series is both easier and harder. It's easier because you don't have to reinvent your characters. They're already there. But it's harder because you have to introduce them in a way that's unique in every book. Because somebody picking up Nathan McBride number three may not have read number one. And each book is a freestanding story. They're not like sequential. Uh, so each story is, is, is unique and different. So you have to be able to describe Nathan's psyche and his personality in every book. And I had, it was really interesting because I got this email from this lady who says, you know, you don't really need to tell it. You don't need to keep telling us that Nathan was so brutally treated and you know, he's got all this stuff. I go, well, yeah, I kind of do. I wrote her back very politely and said, no, I really do because, like I said, people picking up book number four or five may not have read the first few books. And so it's really each book I have to consider that an introduction to the character. So that's where the real challenge comes in is to keep you know, that interesting. How do I explain who he is without doing a cut and paste you know, from book number one? So that, there are ways to do that. You know, um, I have never done the cliched looking in the mirror. He's not blah, 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 blah. You know, that's just so terrible. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, but I think it's it's something you really learn to do. It, it's it's the best way to do it is to just you know I, you have to you have to describe your character fairly early in the story. People need to know what he looks like, or they're going to form their own opinions of him. So um, that's one thing. The kind of one of the rules you have to do is you have to get a pretty good physical description of him going fairly early in the book. I when I teach classes at like La Jolla Writers Conference. One of the critiques that I have for many authors is I go, I'm 20 pages into this. I don't know what your character looks like. You know, what does he look like? you gotta, you got to tell your reader. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, but but that's, those are the two you know, aspects of, of the thriller series. It's easier and it's harder for, for those reasons. The, um, one thing I'm curious about, because I always try and keep in mind who's listening to these interviews, and you know, it, it, it comes down to you know, people who, who, who subscribe to, to this podcast, right? So, um, and then your, you know, your fans. But also, you know, there's a lot of aspiring writers out there who, who listen in because you know, they're, they're hearing it from the masters, so to speak. Um, one, one question that, I, that comes up quite a bit is... Um, what what successful writers think about agents, and I don't mean like <laughs> what they think about them as people, but like you know, is is the role of the agent as important in today's day and age as it was, let's say, before um, you know, before the dawn of the Kindle and before the the rise of of self publishing, um, you know, where there's a you know the the stigma I think around self publishing isn't as great as it as it maybe once was. But what's your take on um, the importance of a literary agent? Well, it's not an easy question to answer because it's kind of a personal thing. Mm. Uh, like you say, in in the day and age of self publishing, you can you know there's services out there that will do everything for you. You submit them the manuscript and they might brush over the editing, but they'll get you a cover, they'll get you listed on Amazon and all the other, you know, uh, Nook, you know, they'll get you listed on all these sites. But the problem with that is, is you can make Mike's chili, right, Mike? You could make a really great chili. You could have boxes and boxes of it sitting in your garage, but how do you get that chili out onto the grocery store, grocery store shelf space mm -hmm. where people will buy it? I mean, they need to find it. And so if you... 
the the risk of doing you know without an agent is that nobody's going to find your story. Um, now there are ways to, that you can pay you know for sponsored ads on Amazon and that sort of thing, but that can get kind of pricey. So you have to. I think the, where the agent comes in is they have they have doors into publishing houses that are closed without them. Mm-hmm. They, have, they have the key to the door. They can open the door and say, hey, I've got this author. I really like him. And because uh, this agent has a reputation for you know, making deals, the publishing house is going to take a pretty serious look at it. So it just, it just depends. I mean, what is your goal as, as an author? Do you want to be a mainstream you know, author? Do you want to make a living at it? Or are you just writing you know, for your friends and family? So depending on what your goal is really depends on what kind of an agent or, or if you even consider getting one. Uh, so I don't think there's an easy answer to yeah. if you get an agent or not. I mean, they are going to take a chunk of your money. That's just the way it goes. But, you know, if they've done the deal, you know, then they then it's a good thing because I mean, there's there should be plenty of money to give him. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. And I, you know, so I, I think about like how big Amazon is and how important it is as a channel. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, even my my consumer packaged goods clients, who who you know, Walmart is their biggest customer. Um, Amazon is year over year. That's where the growth is happening, and that that's just in like you know, that's in health and beauty aids. With books, mm-hmm. obviously, it's it's a different story. I mean, I, I don't know what their share is right now in terms of um, you know, hardcover, paperback, eBooks. Um, but it's gotta be, I have to imagine 60, 70% of all books sold are going through, through Amazon. Um, I would, that's probably right. I don't, I don't have the answer to that, but I, it's a, it's a big number. I don't know how many, like a random house, uh, uh, launch. I don't know how many hardcovers would be going through Amazon. Probably a lot, I would think. Um, and not a small percentage. It, it, I, I wouldn't even run a venture guess as to what the number is, but I would say a lot. Yeah, and, because it's it's so easy. I mean, Amazon's brilliant in what they do. They make it easy. You can do the Prime thing, and then you can have free shipping and get stuff in two days. And if you live in you know remote areas where there's no bookstore or a place to shop, it's it's a it's a great you know it's a great option for you. So it's almost as if like you your distribution the distribution problem has been solved. Where I can. I can get into Amazon, you know, through uh, Kindle Direct. I can get there through mm-hmm. um, uh, CreateSpace, uh, Ingram Spark. You, you know, if you do some work with them, you, they they can even distribute to Amazon. So distribution has has somewhat been solved for. But what 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 still is the the biggest um, challenge is marketing. You know, so if you think about how many independent authors are out there. Um, putting stuff on on Kindle. I mean, there are millions and millions, probably three, four, five million books in the in the Kindle store. Um, how do you cut through that clutter? You know, when people are only looking through one page of search results. Um, so that's that's to me that's the biggest challenge as 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 an author is getting your name out there and and doing the marketing. To me, it's almost harder than the writing. Well, I think it is, and it can be more time-consuming, that's for sure. You know, you, you know, people, I mean, people say, well, I'll do Facebook and Twitter. I mean, how many people go to Facebook to shop for books, right? They, <laughs> it, they, they don't. Yeah, and you're really only reaching your friends and family at that point. Yeah, so, you you know, Amazon does offer these sponsored ads. I've been seeing them a lot more. There's two lines of sponsored uh 
you know, books, when you, when you, if you were to go and say, look, look up an Andrew Peterson novel, like go type in Force to Kill in the Amazon store, and you scroll down a little bit, you'll see sponsored titles. And there's, I think there's two lines of them now. So those are, those are authors that are paying to, you know, put their book right there on my, on my detail page. I don't know what it costs. I haven't done it. Yeah. But it's, that's certainly one way to get, you know, your, your, your image out there. So, I think there's methods to do it, but I'm just not familiar because I, I, I went traditionally published with Thomas and Mercer, the Amazon imprint. Mm-hmm. So they do all that, so I don't I don't really have to worry about it too much. What I mean, in in, in your experience, what has worked really well for you in terms of of marketing and, and public relations? Well, it's Amazon's a little bit different animal because we're not. Bookstores don't really like to carry Amazon titles. I mean, a few do, but most of them are not going to be there. Like, you're not going to find Thomas and Mercer books in most of the WalMarts or the, you know, the Costcos, because Amazon is a competitor, of course. So, as far as promotion goes, I, as an Amazon author, I don't have to make a lot of public appearances at, at bookstores because there really aren't that many bookstores carrying you know, Amazon titles. Yeah. I have exclusive, Amazon has exclusive rights to my titles, so if you want my books, probably 99.9% of everybody's going to get them from the Amazon website. So it's a... So it, it's, I, I did a book signing. Before I signed on with Amazon, I was... <laughs> I guess it's a funny story. I, I was with uh, Dorchester, which is the biggest mass-market paper book house in New York, and I did a signing. I forget where it was, somewhere in the Sacramento area. I came into the Barnes and Noble. I had my little candy bowl, you know, with all that. I had my book sitting there, and it was it was embarrassing. Like I was I was sitting there at this little table, and there was a long line of people waiting to check out, you know, with books, and it just almost like they were afraid to look at me. And I felt like saying, "Well, I don't bite. You can talk to me." At least. I think I sold six or seven books. It was, you know, and it was kind of a, a lesson learned that unless your name's Patterson yep. or Stephen King. You're just not going to get a lot of people showing up for a book signing. I mean, even even if you advertise on the radio and, and papers, it just it just doesn't happen unless you're one of the really big names. I, I did one at Barnes and Noble here in Stanford, Connecticut, and um, mm-hmm. I was very grateful <laughs> that I grew up in this town because <laughs> you know I I yeah. saw my old neighbor um, who bought six copies so we can give one to all of his kids, and you know. Mm-hmm. You know, we sold out of the books that we had, um, which was fantastic and, and, and certainly great. If I were in any part of the other part of the country, it would have been a different story. I would have been, I would have oh. felt, and then look, look, I, I, I used to do a lot of trade shows in, uh, when I was in sales. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'd be there trying to, to, to woo people into the booth. I mean, I would have to put my trade show mentality back on which is kind of not what I want to do. Um, honestly, I don't mm-hmm. want to push my stuff and make people feel guilty or anything like that. Because um, I've, I've done it. I've gone to a bookstore where there was an author, and I'll go up and talk to them because they look lonely, and you know, I, I feel, and I feel bad. <laughs> it's and a horrible feeling. It's a horrible feeling. It's terrible, and, I, and I've got like... like you're a, you have to feel like you're a leper, you know? I, I know. It's like, you know, it's like somebody come, come and heal me. <laughs> it's like I don't bite. Yeah, but, uh, I, I guess I, even even this happens to big time authors. I mean, I, I, I Barry Eisler, a, a friend of mine who's also an Amazon, he, he did a, before he signed with Thomas and Mercer. He told me about a book signing he did in the San Francisco area. He had one person sold one book, 
and Eisler's a pretty big name. I mean, he was so it's just it's really it's kind of hit and miss. I think it, it's really not something that that authors should put a lot of stock in. Like, oh, it's going to be this big glamorous thing. I'm going to have people swooning over me, asking for my autograph, and saying, oh, you're Andrew Peterson. Well, no, it really doesn't work that way. We're kind of under the radar, and um, it's it, it, it's one of the the things about being an author. You have to be pretty humble. I think I think having some humility is a really good trait when you're an author. Well, it, 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 and, and a thick skin. I mean, if you think about um, how many rejection letters you get from agencies, um, I could. Uh, I'm sitting here in my my home office. I could wallpaper the wall with rejection letters, and <laughs> it, to me, it's like you know. Yeah. yeah. I, and every time I write a book, you know, I, I'll I'll start querying agents. And it, but I almost don't want to. And to me, it's almost like avoiding going to the doctor when you know something's really wrong with you because you just don't want to hear the bad news. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a good analogy. And but, uh, yeah, it's something that you that you don't want to give up. I mean, uh, it's, it's it is discouraging. I think I had forty some odd rejections from agents and publishers. Um, but it's. It's a, it's a different world now. See, I think what a lot of happens is a lot of authors, aspiring authors, they give up, and then they just go the self-publishing route. And they say, well, I'm a published author. Well, that may be true, but how many books are you selling? Right. So right. You, it, don't, I, I would encourage people to try to get traditionally published, and then if you can't do it that way, I mean, a lot of people, we're such a fast-food society. Everybody wants instant gratification. It took a long time for me to get published. I worked probably for 12 or 13 years before I sold, um, you know, my, my novel to Dorchester, I probably wrote a million words. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I was watching an interview with Oprah this morning. Um, and, and she was kind of saying, you know, there's a whole culture right now of like millennials on YouTube trying to become famous. Mm -hmm. And, and actually my daughter, my daughter, Gracie, um, you know, he's always telling me about this YouTuber and that YouTuber. And I'm like, first of all, when did, when did that become a thing? Like, when did, why is there even such yeah. a thing as a YouTuber and how is that a job description? But, you know, there's, there, there's a whole, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't get it. And she thinks I'm a square, which of course I am, but, you well, know, but, dad, of course you are. I mean, you know. But Oprah's point was like, look, I had a, you know, it took me a long time to get to where I was, and you want to do it. You want to become me, um, just by doing what you're doing on YouTube, and you know it's just an interesting thing. And I think, I think you know, for some some people who go the self publishing route, their their intent is okay. Well, somebody, the right person's going to come across this book, and then it's going to lead to something that's that's more traditional. Um, and I think that worked mm-hmm. for you know, a few people. I, I think that was Andy Weir's story with, with The Martian. Um, but that's like, you know, that's few and far between. I mean, that's like saying, oh, I don't need to go to college because Michael Dell and Bill Gates didn't go to college. Well, those are those are two out of millions of people who, um, you know, had, uh, those are the outliers, in other words. Yeah, I would say your odds of, of, the, of the Andy Weir thing are probably twenty or 30,000 to one. Yeah. So I, yeah, that's not a good, that's not a good way to, you know, I, I mean, it can, yeah, it can happen, of course, but it's just, it's, it's, I, I just don't want to discourage, discourage anybody, but that's just not a very, a, a good way to do it. I mean, if you, you know, you just have to work really hard. It's like, it's the golfing analogy. If you want to become a really good golfer, you got to go out and golf a lot. You just have to do it. 
I mean, nobody makes money on the PGA Tour who don't who don't practice until their hands bleed. So it's it's. I, I just wish more more people. Uh, I, I guess it's just that fast food society, instant gratification. Everything is so fast these days. It's fast, fast, fast. Yep. Uh, you know. I'm, you know, unless they, unless they're, in, you know, an overnight success, like you said, these YouTubers, they're discouraged. But it's uh, to say, I, I think they, they, they really need to just kind of sit back and and evaluate what is it you really want? What's your long term goal? Do you want to be a novelist and sell a lot of books and make money at it, or do you just want to, you know, say, you know, I did it and I'm moving on? Right. With uh, I'm I'm curious with with you know having seven seven books out and this really you know uh, complex character Nathan McBride um, ha- has Hollywood come calling at all have you have you had those conversations or the joys of of that that roller coaster ride or or not yet? What's interesting that you mentioned Andy Weir because um, his um, agent at CAA is actually my agent for you know for Hollywood dramatic rights and so. Um, yeah, I keep hoping something's going to happen with it, but the truth of the matter is it's, 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 it's pretty low odds because there's a lot of stories out there. There's a lot of books, and if a Hollywood producer is going to spend $50 million on a movie, they got to really love it. And so, they, you know, I, I, I'm hopeful, but it's not something that I'm holding my breath on. I, yeah. I, keep, I remain ever optimistic. I did have it. A, it was optioned a long time ago, about five years ago. It was optioned by some smaller producers, but that option, uh, you know, passed. So, you know, you never know. You never know. I mean, I might get a call tomorrow or it might be two years from now or I might never get one. But <laughs> it's one of those things that you kind of hope you hope for it. But then again, you know, you have to be careful what you wish for. <laughs> right. Right. Once you get that, then you're, you know, it's like the Forrest Gump author. I forget who his name is, but it seems like he had a really great opportunity. But I didn't really hear much about, you know, that particular author after the movie came out. Do you know much about it? I couldn't. I couldn't tell you. I, lo- I did love the film. Um and the soundtrack, oh, it was great. but uh, I couldn't tell you. I mean, that, that, and we should be able to, right? We should be able to know who that that author's name ought to be a household name. You would think because um, it was such a fantastic movie. Um, well, it's I, again, it's I, I'm I'm hopeful, but it's not something that I'm I'm really counting on at this point. I, it's best to have a realistic, you know, outlook on it. Yeah, and, and then the the tough thing also is, and this is cliched, but the, the books are always better than the movie. Um, but you know, more people wind up seeing movies sometimes than reading the book. And then you know, you, I see what happened to um, you know uh, the, the first Mitch Rapp movie, um, uh, American Assassin, which I love the book and the movie. You know, look, I love Michael Keaton, um, but it just wasn't as good as as the book. And then you kind of run that risk too, um, is kind of having your name on it. And, uh, um, you know, I, I mean, obviously, uh, he didn't write the screenplay, um, <laughs> because he's he passed no, away. He didn't. Yeah. Know, but well, I, I watched a very interesting interview with Lee child at one of the thriller fests. And he was talking about the Reacher movie and he mm. goes, well, for those, you know, that really love the books and really into the books, they probably, might have a, a harder time with Tom Cruise playing Reacher. Now, for somebody who hasn't read the books and doesn't know, you know, don't know about his books, they say they'd probably be a little bit, you know, easier with it. But, you know, who's to say? I mean, it's, it's one of those things that I, I, you know, obviously Tom Cruise is very physically different than Jack Reacher. Yeah. 
I think that's what most people had a problem with. I think he got the personality right, but the physical characteristics are so different. So I've had this question before, well, who's going to play Nathan McBride in a movie? And I go, I don't know. I was thinking maybe the American sniper actor. I, I forget his name. Um, Bradley Cooper? Oh, what's his name? Yeah, Bradley Cooper. I think he'd be a good McBride. I really do. That, uh, that's a fun game to play. Who would play your characters in a, uh, in a movie? Is. You know, I could, uh, that... I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little inside, um, tip for anybody who's, who's an aspiring writer that really wants to break out. One of the things I do when I'm writing manuscript, that's very paramount. And I actually have a note on my computer saying this, uh, think about Dick Hill's narration when you're writing, because Dick Hill narrates the audiobooks. And he is the voice of Jack Reacher. He's done Michael Connelly. He's done Harry Bosch. You know, he's, he's a really, really good award-winning uh, audiobook reader. So when I'm writing manuscript, I'm saying to myself, copy, how is this going to sound with Dick Hill reading it? And if I don't think it's going to sound right, then I'll edit it until I do. And so it, it's really kind of my, my, my litmus test for how I want the manuscript to, to look. That's just a tip for anybody who's interested. Yeah, no, that that's actually really interesting, because um, uh, I often, you know, say if 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 it doesn't sound good coming out, because I'll always read out loud kind of stuff that I've uh, mm-hmm. written, and if it doesn't sound good, then I change it. But that's interesting thinking about somebody else reading it. Um, I never never even gave that a consideration. Well, he's he's it's an interesting story. Um, I don't, I, I'll show this with you real quickly. When I finished First to Kill, I'd been corresponding with Dick Hill a little bit off and on because I really loved his, his narration, and I, we'd exchanged a few emails here and there. And when First to Kill was published by Dorchester, we, we sent it to an audio house, and they turned it down. They didn't want to do it. And I told Dick Hill a long time ago, look, if I ever become a published author, I, I, want, you to read the, I want you to be the narrator for it. And he goes, okay, Andy, that's, that's fine. And so when I realized I didn't have a contract, I just, I hired him to do it. Mm-hmm. I said, look, I don't care. Just, you know, read the book, you know, send me the, <laughs> so I, I paid him thousands of dollars to do this. It was, and it was, and when I got the material, he had done such a fantastic job on it. It was just amazing. I was dumbfounded. I was sitting in my living room just going, I can't believe this. I, 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 so I sent the file to the audio company that had turned me down and they said, we want it. <laughs> and so it's, <laughs> Like, you, you just you just never know, and so it was an interesting story. So I actually really kind of self-published an audio book. Yeah, and I, 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 you know, it it turned out to be a good decision, but it was it was definitely a risk. I hadn't really anticipated it, it selling, but I think once they heard Dick play Nathan McBride, they realized that there was something there that that, that would reach people, and and it's done pretty well at at, at the um, on the audio sales side. Yeah. A lot of people listen to audiobooks because. It's great. You can do it working out. You can do it driving. If you got a really long commute and you're stuck in traffic, you can kind of tune it out. And so I think I think audiobooks. I'm not sure, if, Mike, how how much you know about it, but the, it seems to be a growing industry. I, I tell you, I have a lot of people who say who come to me like this is kind of in the friends and family you know category. Say, look, I don't read, and it's usually guys. You know, I, I don't mm-hmm. read. You do an audiobook, <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So so my my most successful novel to date. Um, is a comedy, and I just didn't want anybody reading it because um, you could go on onto the, uh, you know, uh, 
audio content exchange and find a producer who's willing to to do a royalty split with you so you don't have to pay anybody. I'm like, okay, I don't want, I just don't want anybody doing it. Um, so mm-hmm. I, one of my favorite podcasts is the Adam Carolla show. Um, and he's got a, his announcer, like I listen to and I'm like, that guy's voice is perfect. It is perfect for this book. Um, so I found a, I found a way to reach the guy and, and he agreed to, to read it for me. Um, we negotiated the price. It's not cheap. Um, no, it's not. No. And, uh, yeah. but, but also if it's, if it's my first one out of the gate, I want to know that I'm putting my best foot forward. So I know the story's good. The content's good. I want the, the guy to read it. Um, so he's, he's actually working on it right now. He sent me the first two chapters and I read them. I was driving into New York, um, a few weeks ago, and, I, and I'm like, you know what? Let me let me read this on my way in, as as people would read it, you know, kind of in their car. And I got to tell you, I know every word that that comes in chapter three, but after after hearing chapters one and two, like it left me wanting to hear more. <laughs> so I'm like, I, wow, this, this could be, you know. So th- then I knew that I kind of made the right decision there, but. You know, I, I think um, I think you're right. I mean, audiobooks. Um, you know, we, we are an on-the-go society. People, a lot of people don't take the time to read, and um, people multitask. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. We'll see. Well, there's you know, Audible.com offers a really great program. It's called ACX, and you probably you probably know about it yep. for your readers that don't. And what you can do is you can go onto the ACX website, and you can pick an audiobook reader i mean they all kind of audition they have you know and so you can you can negotiate with them like you said if you want to do the deal where they do it for free but you split you know the royalties you can go that route or you can just flat out pay them to do it and so people are self-publishing audiobooks now which is really kind of interesting it's another and, and it might lead to something you never know i mean maybe a producer you know is listening to it on the way to work and wow there's something here so but it's it's another it's another part of the industry that's becoming more in tune to, you know, the author taking more command over his own career. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating. It's fast. I can't wait. I can't wait to actually hear the rest of it. So what, um, I know it's, <laughs> I, I was so blown away. I, 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 I wrote this book. I, I'm so good. <laughs> I, he made it. I mean, he, I, I give him all the credit whenever anybody writes me, you know, with the audiobook, I say, look, Dick Hill gets all the credit. He can make a grocery list sound good. Um, it's just an amazing, he's, he's really, really, he's retiring too. So he's, he's, just, um, very, you know, so I, I got him just, just before he retired to do hired to kill, which I was very fortunate. Um, so he's, uh, audiobooks I think are, are fantastic. I I'm, I'm of this old, I'm going to date myself here a little bit, but I used to listen to the CBS radio mystery hour when I was a kid. It was, you know, radio, yeah. like, like a radio play. It's just a foreign concept to today's millennials. They don't have any, they don't, they don't know what it is. I mean, it, and I, it was so fascinating listening to those voices and those people acting with only their voices. It was really, really interesting. I, I kind of fell in love with the, with the art of, of narration. Well, there, you know, the, um, the serial podcast. So my niece, uh, turned me on to the serial podcast. I don't know if, if you're familiar with that or not. Um, but it, uh, you know, it, it, it was a 10 episode, um, investigation into a, a case, um, that, um, huh. it was sponsored by, it was produced rather by NPR, um, a woman who was, uh, kind of worked for NPR and I never listened to anything like that before, but I was hooked. 
Um, and it played out like an old fashioned. It was edited like an almost like an old fashioned radio drama, but it was it was fascinating to me. Nice, um, absolutely fascinating. So there definitely is yeah, something that's interesting. there. I, yeah, I it's, I, I kind of hope it makes a, a comeback. It's it's I see so many people staring at their phones. You know, everywhere you go, does anybody you know really? listen to anything anymore but i guess the, the much the answer must be yes because the audiobook industry as far as i know is is going bonkers right now it's really really taking off well i i do want to be respectful of your time um because we have hit that hour mark i was just curious if um if if you could give your your younger self some advice um, so, you know, let's say 15 years ago, maybe even more, I mean, going back to, mm-hmm. um, even more, what would, what would you tell your younger self now? What, what would you have your older self tell your younger self? Well, I think that's an easy one regarding the, my, my career as an author, I would have attended writers conferences a whole lot earlier. Um, I was writing in a vacuum for a long time. I just was writing. I was sitting up in my office just writing, and I didn't know the rules. And there are rules. There absolutely are rules. And so if I had attended writers' conferences earlier in my life, I probably would have been published a whole lot sooner because as soon as I attended the conferences, I realized you know, that I was making a lot of mistakes and that there, you can network with authors and agents and editors and those are the professionals, you know, that are in the business and they, they know what to do and they help you and they teach you. And so I would say if anybody's out there kind of working on your own, you're stuff in your, you know, seek out a writer's conference in your area and, and, and attend it. It will really, really help you a whole lot. Any, any one that stands out to you as, as being most impactful or, you know, if there's, if there's only one somebody could go to, what, what should it be? Well, it really depends on your genre. If you're if you're writing in the thriller genre, I would suggest Thriller Fest, but it can be expensive. It's in New York City. There's BoucherCon for mysteries. There's uh, RT for, you know, it's becoming a more all genre uh, conference. But RT is was primarily romance, and there's you know, um, so it, you really have to you have re- there a lot of them are, are are genre specific, although a lot of conferences do touch on other genres. They focus on a, on a particular one. So you need to do your homework and find out what genre you're writing. And I'm surprised how many authors really don't know what genre they're writing. And I said, well, well, who's your target audience? And they look at me with this deer in the headlights and I go, well, you need to know that, you know, <laughs> you need to find out who your, you know, who your audience is. And it's so, uh, definitely attend writers conferences. Everything you need to know is, is at those, um, at those conferences. Well, very good. Very good. Well, I have to say, I, I certainly enjoyed uh, the hour we just spent together, Andy. Yeah, Mike, I did too. You, you're, you sound like an old friend. This is great. <laughs> well, that's what I, that's what I go for. That's what I go for. Um, you oh. know, I, uh, I, I like to say, I, I, which is true. I do interview people for a living, but, but usually not, um, not people this interesting. <laughs> I run focus groups all over the country, so this is uh, this is uh, these are much more enjoyable conversations. Not that I don't like um, talking to people about credit mm-hmm. cards, but uh, it's always nice to have a change of pace. <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, people are very interesting when you get into them, you know, and find out what what makes them tick. It, it can it, it can be interesting. I've enjoyed my time with you. I, I really appreciate you inviting me onto your show, and I uh, I 
you know, I can't wait to, to find out where to find it. Well, I will, uh, I will send you a link when, uh, when it is ready, probably sometime early next week. I, I always do a little post-production on these things and, uh, you know, then I, I tighten sure. it up a bit and, um, yeah, I'll send you a link early next week. Well, please do. And, and I hope you stay in touch with me. I'd, I'd like to follow your career and I, I really want to, I really want to see you make it as an author. If, it's, if that's really what you truly love and it's where your heart is, then keep going for it. I keep will. And, and be careful what you wish for, because I keep in touch with everybody. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but thank you, Mike. I really, really appreciate you inviting me on the show. No, no, thank you. And, and all the best. And best of luck with the, with the latest release. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it, my interview with the best-selling author of the Nathan McBride series, Andrew Peterson. Great conversation. I hope you agree. If you want to learn more about Andrew Peterson, you can visit his website, which is www.andrewpeterson.com. If you want to hear more episodes of Uncorking a Story with other best-selling authors, feel free to go to uncorkingastory.com. Click on the podcast tab. You'll see all the interviews we have there. And if you want to learn more about me and my books, uh, you can visit michaelcarlinauthor.com. That's Carlin with an O and not an I. So for everybody here, all the hardworking people at Uncorking a Story, uh, this is Mike Carlin saying thank you for listening and until next time.